Hello, everyone, and welcome to the third episode of You Have to Watch This. I'm Clayton Terry. And I'm Ted Ryan. This is the podcast where we recommend a movie for each other to watch each week, and then we discuss it the following week. Last week, we had Heavy Metal and Isle of Dogs for our animation category. We had a very impassioned discussion. Very heated discussion. Uh, That was really informative and fun. (laughs) Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, Talked about gender roles and the technical marvels behind the films that we love. Mm-hmm. We didn't really convince either person. <laughs> I think we were both set in stone on what our opinions on on the movies we watched. Yeah, but it was it was interesting to have a the second week be that contrarian already. <laughs> yeah, it's good. I like it. But it was fun. It was fun. So last week, I flipped the coin, I believe. So Ted, this is on you. As always, tea for Ted. We have the ceremonial penny in my hand. Gonna shake in my hand like a dice. You don't know how to flip a coin. <laughs> what? I need to teach you. Tails. Tails. So, Ted, do you want to talk about your movie first or my movie first? Uh, I think uh, I'm going to talk about my movie first. The one that I recommended to you last week was a, the 1975 film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest uh, by director Milos Forman. Uh, and based on a 1962 book of the same ni- name by Ken Kesey, Ken Kesey, I don't know how to pronounce that, got a star-studded cast. Uh, and the premise of this film is essentially Jack Nicholson plays Mac Murphy, uh, a inmate that is sent to a insane asylum uh, or a mental care facility um, to be evaluated by the state to see if he is... Uh, mentally insane or has some mental condition. Uh, in the process, he meets a cast of characters that are all in the asylum for one reason or another, and through kind of a camaraderie against this kind of dictator-like nurse, uh, Nurse Ratchet, they kind of grow as a, a family. Uh, and it's kind of the uh, a story of a, a man against the state, in a way. Uh, what did you think of this film? Um, before I say that, can I ask what made you want to recommend this movie? Is it just how much you loved it? Is there any nostalgia attached to it? I watched this as part of a senior film class in high school. And we watched, it was like each week, it was like a different decade of film. And we would oh, watch one cool. film from each. Uh, the teacher, Mr. McGran, uh, I don't know if we should say names. <laughs> it's been said, uh... It was a decent class, um, but regardless, I was introduced to a lot of great films in that class. Uh, this was one of those films, and I had never heard of it before that, and it's probably in my top 10 or top 20 um, of all films of all time. Wow. Dang. So I just wanted to share it with you, because it's one of my favorite films. Um, as I mentioned last week, this is one of the movies that you've seen that I haven't that I wanted to see the most and I would be lying if I said a small percentage of this podcast was not like this would force me to watch one flew over the cuckoo's <laughs> nest because Ted's inevitably going to recommend it at some point and so you're saying we need to end the podcast because you've gotten yeah, what you it is concluded we have our trilogy <laughs> the second one is the worst <laughs> it was the best it was the best which is usually what happens except not really at all only with <laughs> Star Wars okay but I was not disappointed at all. I adored this movie. I think we should kind of just break down the different aspects of the film. Um, We'll start in kind of non-spoiler territory, because I imagine there are a lot of people that haven't seen this movie that would love to. So the first scene that I was like, "I'm, I'm on board this movie, is the first therapy scene that McMurphy joins in. It's where Harding is talking about his wife, That scene in particular, I think all the therapy scenes are some of the strongest parts of this movie, but that scene in particular is one of the most well-acted scenes I've ever seen because each actor is portraying a role that's not easy and it's very different from every other character in that circle, Mm -hmm. but you still manage to pick up on the nuances of each character one of the things I really appreciate about the film is that all the asylum uh, inmates uh, or patients, I should say, they all have, you know, defining personalities and quirks and stuff. But we don't get a scene where 
we go down the line and this is, you know, yeah. this is his problem. This is his problem. It, it just very naturalistically, you pick up on all the, ma- the mannerisms of mm-hmm. all the fantastic performances. Yeah, that's a really good point. Because in a lesser movie, you would have that. Nurse Ratchet shows McMurphy around and it's like, this is Billy. He has a stutter. This is Harding. He's in here because he's gay? Question mark. Yeah. <laughs> this is Martini. He's Danny DeVito. <laughs> that's why he's here. Um... <laughs> <laughs> we just found him on the street and we threw him in here. <laughs> no, but it's just... You have the two powerhouses of this film, at least, of um, Louis Fletcher and Jack Nicholson as Ratchet mm-hmm. and McMurphy, respectively. And Ratchet, her dialogue isn't really conveying much. It's all in her face. And Jack Nicholson is almost the same way in that he can say so much just with his shit-eating grin or his eyebrows. Mm-hmm. He is such... He's genuinely a once-in-a-generation actor. Absolutely. Louis Fletcher is deliciously evil in this like just bone chilling so scary i'm really interested in breaking down her character because i went into this movie hearing over and over again that nurse ratchet is one of the best villains in cinema history and my first watch i felt like i don't hate this woman enough why is that because a lot of the stuff she's doing is evil but then At the same time, I kind of saw her perspective in certain ways. That's what makes her so evil, is that you can understand everything that she's trying to do, but then when she takes it too far is what sets her over the line of being a genuinely terrible person. At first, it's like, she wants control. And in a place like this, I would argue that kind of makes sense. You want to have control over the situation. Um, but that slowly leaks into manipulation and the dictatorial aspects of her personality that you talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some of the most evil things she does towards the end, which I don't know if we want to necessarily get into spoilers right now. We'll come back to it. Yeah. But that was something I realized on the second watch is there's a turning point in the film, which we'll talk about in spoilers, when I feel like she does become that evil character that I heard about in cinema. And then it obviously just gets worse from there. But... That's what's so powerful about Louise Fletcher's performance is she is sympathetic while being manipulative and hateful. Two Star Trek connections I want to quickly talk about in regards okay. to Louise Fletcher. In Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Louise Fletcher plays a uh, religious priestess who, again, delivers a deliciously evil performance and she kind of masks her evil and the good intentions of the theocracy of the planet, like the setting is located in. And if you want more Louise Fletcher in the same vein, watch Deep Space Nine. And second, um, what you just said brings to light a quote from uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, there's a an episode where essentially someone tries to make a power move through um, making a scapegoat of an enemy. And, you know, Picard says to Worf at the end of the episode, uh, it's easy to, to spot um, villains twirling their mustaches. Um, it's harder to spot villains that mask their deeds and good intentions. Yes, definitely. That's such a good way to describe her character. And I should have expected there to be more nuance in one of the worst villains of all time. Um, <laughs> but it took it took two watches to really capture the complexities of her performance. While we're, while we're talking about her and Jack Nicholson, I ended up watching their acceptance speeches for this movie, um, for the Oscars. And Louise Fletcher gives such a tearjerker acceptance speech. She ends it um, using ASL because both of her parents are deaf. And, oh, she's just, you can tell this means so much to her, this award, even though they are kind of silly. But, oh, it just warmed my heart. And then up next was Jack Nicholson, so I watched that. And it was almost weird to see him as, like, a normal person. Right. Because what ex- what um, performances of his have I seen? I've seen The Joker, I've seen this, and I've seen um, The Shining. And those are, like, he's batshit crazy. I'm not sure if it was for The Shining, but I know for one uh, year of Academy Awards, he accepted an award on set filming One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Really? Well, The Shining came after, so... So he it probably was Chinatown because Chinatown was seventy four. That sounds right. Mm-hmm. And that movie's supposed to be incredible as well. So um, I thought that was really cool. 
to see the more human aspects of their real personalities and to see them get the recognition that they deserve. If we're going to be speaking about um, fantastic performances, I think we need to talk about the supporting cast of characters. Definitely. We briefly talked about how everyone has, you know, defining quirks and personalities, but that it's it all of them give such compelling performances that you really feel for these characters that you you know you feel like you've known them their whole life Definitely. you know and you you know the the way you really feel like you're a part of that camaraderie and that that band of brothers um and you know the the standout performance is Brad Dorif as Billy uh yes. who's the youngest of the group uh who has a stutter and anxiety issues i believe and do we want to get into spoilers yeah yeah let's get into spoilers so for a majority of the film billy is essentially kind of like either the younger brother or like the the baby brother or the a son to mac you know mac definitely he he enters into this pre-established social group and almost becomes the the patriarch um and you know he kind of corrals them into action and to have fun and to break the rules and to uh, resist Nurse Ratchet's rule. And by the end of the film, the, they kind of throw a party and all of them get, you know, drunk and smoke and they gamble and have a whole lot of fun. Mac's friends come over and Mac sets Billy up with a woman because, you know, that's the thing that he just to kind of lighten his mood, I guess. Um, the next morning, Nurse Ratchet comes in to discover the place is in, you know, total cat- catastrophe. Everyone's lying on the floor. It's messy. Uh, it's chaos. And she finds uh, Billy in a uh, office room. And he, he walks out, uh, stumbles out, trying to put his clothes on. Uh, and for the first time in the film, his eyes are like full of life, he's got a big smile, and his, his stutter has disappeared. Yep. And he's got a newfound confidence and like energy in his life. And I think this is arguably the turning point, I would say, for... I would say it's earlier, but okay. Th- like, if you weren't against Nurse Ratchet here, this you would absolutely be against her Definitely. now. And she essentially threatens to tell his mother what he had done. And his stutter returns and he is taken away. And in privacy, he slits his throat and kills himself. And what were your thoughts on that scene? Um, To kind of break it down sequence by sequence, I love Jack Nicholson's face as he watches Billy through that scene. Just with his face, it goes from proud of like, yeah, you stand up to her, to kind of a slow realization that maybe Billy didn't need to just get laid. Maybe he has genuine issues that he needs to work through. Is Nurse Ratchet the best person to help with that? Obviously not, based on how it ends. But he's not just this problemless kid. His anxiety is real. And watching Jack Nicholson watch Billy start hitting himself was... I mean, an incredibly powerful performance, but really difficult. And then when Ratchet finds that he died by suicide and shuts the door, I don't know if she shuts the door, but she blocks him out. And is like, we just need to go back to our daily routine. That is the most like frustrating thing for us as the audience to hear. Mm -hmm. And Jack Nicholson's character to hear, because that is just the pinnacle of the devastation that pure order can cause. And Oh my god, when he... Oh, that scene is so tense. And when he strangles her. And I think in that scene, there is... In addition to the the mix of emotions that he was displaying, I think there's a twinge of, like, don't rat me out, Billy. Like, don't tattle on me. As well as, like, like what you said, kind of, like, guilt that, like, maybe he is in the wrong. You know, like, maybe, like, his worldview of um, this kind of pleasure-driven, um, uh, ego-driven existence is wrong, and it's not the right thing. And that's, I think, part of the reason why he reacts in violence, because he's yeah. shown that his worldview isn't right. Yeah, it's destructive. So, do you think that the 
conclusion from this movie is that we should exist somewhere between McMurphy and Ratchet, somewhere between that pure ego-driven chaos and the daily routine order that contains sedatives and electrotherapy. No, I, 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 it's very much in a way the, the horseshoe theory, you know, the further on the spectrum you go, the closer they become. And I think they're both equally wrong in their worldviews. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I really like that analysis because at the beginning you don't necessarily disagree or agree with either of them. Like we talked about how ratchet, it makes sense that she would want control and it makes sense that Jack Nicholson is just going to treat these people like people. So that's the bottom of the horseshoe. And then we see them get so far apart and then slowly work their way back to the middle as being arguably equally destructive. I mean, Billy also wouldn't have died if Jack Nicholson didn't force him to have sex with Candy. Right. So I that I think that was something I struggled with the first viewing is I thought I was supposed to think Jack Nicholson's character, McMurphy, was right the whole time, and I didn't feel that way. That's one of the things I really appreciate about this film is that it really challenges the viewer in the way that it makes you empathize empathize with the protagonist. Mm-hmm. Um, and right from the get-go, as I was re-watching clips last, li- last night, one of the first scenes he's introduced, he essentially kind of brags about possibly raping uh, yeah. un- an underage girl. So right from the get-go, we don't know if he's telling the truth or, you know, he's kind of doing this lovable asshole thing. And it's hard for us to, like... Get a read on this figure. Yeah. Did you know, I heard this in a podcast I listened to afterwards, that they aged up the girl that he rapes in the book. In the book, she's nine. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So, I guess 15 was more palatable for the 70s, but um, they, I think that's interesting, because they do want you to like McMurphy, but they don't Mm want to hide his flaws. I think in, I know that the book, the framing narrative is that... It's Chief telling the story of his experience. And Chief is the protagonist. And Mac is the outside force that joins in. I don't know. I feel as if that might be a necessary change for the way the film is structured. Definitely. I haven't read the book, obviously. But I wouldn't be surprised if this is one of those movies like Jaws where people actually think the movie's stronger because of that change. Mm Mm-hmm. We've been talking a bit about how McMurphy wasn't as easy to identify, and you mentioned the, like, band of brothers mentality. I saw a lot of parallels between this and the Shawshank Redemption. I actually wrote down in my notes that Andy Dufresne is, like, lawful good, and McMurphy is somewhere between, (laughs) like, chaotic good, chaotic neutral. And I thought they'd make a good, like, parallel viewing. I was wondering if you had a... They would make a good double feature. Yeah, definitely. I would would say Mac is more of lawful evil maybe or neutral evil lawful evil i was thinking that too but i was like that doesn't it doesn't feel like he's nurse evil. ratchet lawful evil yeah she's definitely lawful evil uh i guess maybe chaotic neutral for Matt. chaotic neutral at least that's true because he doesn't he's not nice to these people necessarily out of the good of his heart it's not like it's very self-centered and ego-driven you yeah. know the scene with the the baseball game where um, there's a vote called and um, to put the World Series up. It kind of becomes like, I think Cheswick is the first to mention it. Um, and Mac really latches onto it as a way to show his power and dominion over the group and to yeah. show that Nurse Ratchet has lost her power. Yeah. And, he, you know, the way he reacts in anger and fury, you know, it's it's more of him winning and beating her than it is to actually watch the game. More of winning that bet that he makes. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. We were talking about it a little bit pre-spoilers um, about like when Ratchet kind of turned for us. You mentioned that it was... What, was it for you when she mentions Billy's mom to him? Or was it earlier? Well, there's the electroshock therapy scene. Yeah, that's pretty messed up. I think for me, it was when Nurse Ratchet tells the other leaders of this prison that she wants to fix... McMurphy, I feel like that's when she's like, okay, we're we're in this pissing match now, and I want to win. Right. Because she knows he's not insane, not mentally he's, unstable. He's just an asshole. Yeah, he's just, <laughs> he's just kind of a dick. 
But she makes a decision right there that it's more important for her to win. Mm -hmm. And in a way, she really is abusing her power in that situation. Mac is really helpless to stop that. He's essentially imprisoned in a place where they have full medical autonomy. Autonomy? Autonomy uh, over his person. And that's just like one of the scariest things imaginable you know being unable to fight back against that um i think that would naturally kind of lead us into the ending of mcmurphy's character with the lobotomy um how did you feel about those last like 15 20 minutes oh man that it gets me going it is one thing we haven't discussed so far is mac and chief's relationship yeah um chief is this this giant of a man and he's silent and he keeps to himself and he's just always pushing a broom around the the, the room uh mac kind of takes to him uh kind of as a a punchline almost uh but before the electroshock therapy scene um he hands him a piece of uh juicy fruit gum and chief reveals that he is <laughs> thanks <laughs> he just says thanks and uh he's like mm, juicy fruit Oh, does he say that? Yeah, he, that. afterwards. And um, he reveals that he's basically fine, yeah. um, as far as we know. Mm-hmm. Um, and the two quickly become, I guess, best friends in a way. Yeah. Uh, and after the lobotomy scene, uh, Chief moves to break the two of them out, only to pick up the, I guess, I guess lifeless body of Mac to re- realize that he's essentially brain dead. Uh, and he ends his life uh, with a pillow over the head. Mm. Real, real tragic. It's 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 a challenging film that even though this character is a despicable asshole, we do come to he's a lovable asshole, <laughs> a lovable asshole, and it's it's tough to see him go. And it's, it's hard. I think you can make the argument that whether or not he wins in the end, because he doesn't last a night in this brain dead state that Ratchet clearly wanted for him. And someone breaks out like his influence over this ward is never going to be erased. And I think Ratchet was going for that by doing what I believe is the most evil act she does in this movie. And it kind of happens off screen, putting him back in the ward so that everyone right. wakes up to see him brain dead in there. Like, he becomes what a symbol. A, exactly. What a fuck you to all these prisoners. Like, if you act up like this, if you believe in his ideology, this is what's going to happen to you. That is so messed up. And I didn't really digest that until the second viewing. But I was that made me... That was when I was like, okay, Nurse Ratchet, she it's, is... It's j- truly sickening and yeah. horrifying. Chief allows him to die in dignity in a way. Yeah. And I, I guess Max worldview or spirit um lives on in chief as he finally overcomes the the symbol of the 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 hospital's power the um the bathroom sink marble sink yeah something like that um he he finally gathers the strength to rip it off the pipes and he chucks it at a window and he escapes into the night Mm -hmm. only for the patients to cheer him on as he enters Canada. <laughs> the the <laughs> land of must freedom. have been right on the border. <laughs> it looked like it was filmed in the Northwest somewhere. So. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, we kind of talked about the ending. Any concluding thoughts on this movie? A lot of great performances. Um, fantastic score. Um, I believe they used um, traditional um, uh, Native American and First People um, instrumentals. Mm-hmm. Really, this is a knockout film in terms of performances, and I'm just, I keep repeating that, but it's it's so true. It's, it is. It's amazing. So check it out. So one final question I had for you, and maybe we've already answered it. This won the Big Five at the Oscars. That's... Yes, I had that as a <laughs> thing of trivia from IMDb. Um, which only three films have done. <laughs> it's number 16 on IMDb's Top 250, 33 on AFI's Top 100 of 2007. Um, those are some big accolades. Do you feel like it rises to the occasion? Absolutely. This Absolutely. is, as far as, you know, movies go, this is what movies should strive to be. Mm-hmm. Tell a compelling original story with compelling performances, great directing. It's 
I there's no faults with this movie for me. Yeah. I mean, both of these movies that we watched this week, I had that feeling that you've described both when you talked about Hidden Fortress and the Trench Run in our Star Wars podcast. This is why I love movies, like being able to exist in the shoes of others and have these experiences that I would never have and take in these stories that are so filled with life is why I love watching movies. And I I agree. I agree. It rises to the occasion of all the awards it's garnered over the years. All right. Cool. Before we move on to Moonlight, one thing I found out, uh, Brad Dorif, I knew who plays Billy. I knew he looked familiar. He is the voice of Chucky in Child's Play, as well as Wormtongue in Lord of the Rings. He's Wormtongue? Yes. What? I... if I were to rank the performances of all time <laughs> that I thought Billy was also the actor for, Wormtongue would have been the bottom. That's crazy. I also, yeah, I, like my jaw like dropped when I saw that on his IMDb page. I was like, I could not believe it. He did look familiar, but not in like a Wormtongue way. Is there anything else he was in that was contemporary? He's been in a ton of films, especially, um, I won't say like B-movie films, but um, a lot of horror films. Okay, so maybe stuff like that I'd recognize him from. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what film did you make me watch, Clayton? Ted, as we talked about last week, I wanted to push you outside your comfort zone, watch a movie you probably wouldn't seek out if you found it on a streaming service. Um, and that was Moonlight, Barry Jenkins' 2016 film, unfortunately probably most known for the debacle that happened at the Oscars. Where That's what it, I knew it from. Exactly, where it went to... it wrongly was announced that it went to la la land and it ended up going to moonlight um i absolutely love both of those movies but because of that i feel like neither really got their appropriate place in history um which is disappointing but ted what did you think of moonlight i like this film but i didn't love it didn't love it i don't have much to complain about this film much critique yeah um and it was a pretty great film, but it didn't cr- pass the threshold for me loving it. Yeah, it didn't connect with you on like a emotional level that's kind of hard to describe, right? Because that's always... The... I, it did, but not in the same way One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest did. Of course, okay. So this movie is broken up into three segments. I think, like Heavy Metal, it would be best if we just kind of ran through each segment again this is a movie that's kind of hard to spoil um there's no big climax it's just about observing the life of chiron and the people in his life so spoiler warning i guess but so the first scene he is very young he's 9 10 i'm terrible at guessing ages Um, 10 or 11 i think and this segment begins with kind of his connection that he has to Mahershala Ali's character, Juan. This is Mahershala Ali's best performance so far, in my opinion. How did you feel about their dynamic and this beginning segment of the movie? I would say this first segment, where it covers his childhood, was my favorite part of the film. The two of them really develop a really fascinating dynamic, where in which... Um, Ali kind of becomes the default or de facto father figure to young uh, Chiron. In a way, comforts him, um, tells him that it's, you know, it's okay to be gay, um, teaches him how to stand up for himself, to respect himself, um, shelters him uh, from his mom. Amazing child performance from so good. I was thinking that I'm not. I'm not familiar with the actors. Oh name. yeah, no, me neither. Um, but I was thinking that the second time watching it because it didn't even cross my mind the first time that like these performances should be bad. But the two Kevin and Chiron are both incredible actors all the way through. But I will say I didn't like Kevin in the childhood sequence. Really, I well, thought the acting was kind of like golly, like very fake. You know, like. I didn't believe that performance, but that was the only one I didn't like in the film. Okay, I, I bought it, but did you know that Barry Jenkins didn't, for the three actors for both Chiron and Kevin, they didn't tell them how 
the other actors were going to perform. They wanted each actor to organically come up with this character. And I thought that was amazing because the small mannerisms of Chiron as a kid eating, like the way he eats, that's the same way the older Chiron eats. And I don't know how they accomplished that because the actors didn't like talk or share notes or anything. Were they given the entire script or were they given only their segment? That's a good question. They might have been given the entire script, so they were still able to tell. I think maybe if the older ones, the older two, were given like the prior um, scripts, I think that would make sense. But they didn't like see the performances, so those nuances, right. uh, those nuances I'm talking about, I feel like they shouldn't have translated as well as they did. But that was something I noticed more so in the last segment. I love this beginning part. I'm trying to. It might be my favorite segment of the three. Just of the three, I feel like it has the strongest narrative. It yeah, has definitely. it has a very clear like beginning, middle, and end. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very easy to tell like where the story is going. Mm-hmm. Um, which is something I do want to discuss. You talked about it very briefly, but part of me likes this. Part of me doesn't like this. That the film is very much like a day in the life, and that it's not really like a structured film. You know, like it's we're seeing things unfold rather than we we know what's going to happen next. Can you go more into that? Let's use Lord of the Rings, for example, because it's on my mind, because of Brad Dorif. <laughs> uh, they have to bring the ring to Mordor and drop it into the volcano to defeat Saruman. Sar- Sauron, sorry. Um, and um, so there's a clear goal-oriented plot. You know, we have to get here. We have to... There will be adventures along the way. This film is very much, you know, each day at a time. And it's very naturalistic in that it doesn't particularly like yes in the actions of the characters it does build towards narrative but in the terms of the film itself it's not structured as a story but i'm gonna push back on that because this film again like with the thing we talked about last week it is in no way going for that it is because real life isn't narratively structured you're not building towards when you're nine a climactic 90 minute mark at 30 you know what i mean right it feels like a day in the life but it's the day that stood out the most in this character's memory i think what prevented me from loving the film was that i almost kind of felt lost in the film yes in a good way yes in a bad way it's like good and bad aspects to that where I never really knew what was going to happen, and I felt like I was always a little bit confused, you know, when a new scene would start. So it felt like there was a disconnect between me and the film where in which I was trying to keep up with the film. Okay, interesting. It's hard for me to comment on that, because I didn't experience that either time I've watched this movie. Yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) That you felt disjointed. It just felt like, did it feel like I don't understand how this scene, how we got to this scene from the previous scene? No, it's just, it's like, I want A to lead to B to lead to C, you know? And it's, I'm not saying all film narratives uh, should be like that, but I felt like I didn't know where it was going. Because you don't know where life's going, man. You don't know that you're going to get a call from your childhood sweetheart when you're 28, 30. Again, again, it's, I like it, I like it, but I dislike it also. Okay. It's, it's something that's, you know, it's, I wouldn't say it's a, it just may not be the type of film you gravitate towards. Yes. Okay. Um, and then one other point I wanted to make, totally backtracking, but with Juan and Paula in that first scene is you feel like you're supposed to feel like Juan's a better father figure, a better, better parent than Paula is, but they make this explicitly clear He's the one that is causing the turmoil in her life. Like, she says herself, like, what are you going to say? I'd get these from somewhere else? Like, no, I'm getting them from you. Both his parent parental figures are a source of his yes, trauma. Yeah, definitely. And it may not feel like it when you're eating dinner with Juan and um, his girlfriend, wife, I forget. Teresa? 
at least. That sounds right. Um, you may not feel that as much as you do when Paula, in the next scene, is demanding money from Chiron, which was one of the most heartbreaking scenes for me to have to watch this character watch his mom go through something as horrific as withdrawal. I can't even fathom how difficult that would be, but I really like the inclusion of these two characters in this first scene to um, kind of compare their outlooks on life. And just very interesting characters in general that these these two, I guess, drug dealers um, take in this little boy that they feel sympathy for. You know, it's 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 an interesting juxtaposition, you know, because when we picture drug dealer, you know, we don't picture these upstanding members of the community. It's just this interesting, like, like I've never seen anything like it before. Yeah. Moving on to the second segment, how did you feel about that aspect? Um, one of the most climactic, pun intended, <laughs> parts of the movie happened in the middle of this. Yeesh. <laughs> What was that rough? I'm sorry. Yikes. It can't I realized it was a pun midway saying it. Um You committed to it. I respect that. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> um how did you feel about this whole segment? I enjoyed it. I think of the 3, this was my least favorite. Okay. In this segment, Chiron uh is I believe maybe 15 or 16. Yeah. Uh early high school. Uh, and he, again, is dealing with much more violent bullying uh, over his uh, homosexuality. It ultimately culminates in him and uh, his friend, Kevin, sharing an intimate moment on the beach. And the following day, uh, they are forced to fight by the bullies. And goes downhill from there. That... Oh my god, that was so heartbreaking. Both of these movies, I didn't necessarily cry on, on the second viewing, <laughs> but they're both <laughs> definitely um, know how to pull those heartstrings. This scene was the hardest for me to watch with Kevin punching Chiron and telling him to stay down and Chiron just getting up over and over again until the bullies step in and really um, go into him. Yeah, it's just a mix of incredible directing and performances and screenwriting. Just that that scene really worked for me. It's definitely one of the best scenes in mm -hmm. the film. One criticism I do have of the film is that I really enjoy the method of directing in terms of the camera positioning. And there's a lot of handheld shots, or mm -hmm. at least... Um, Shots that aren't locked down, um, many kind of close-ups or extreme close-ups. The scene where in which it's they have that fight, I think, is the best use of that method of shot reverse shot. However, I feel as if the film uses it a bit too liber liberally in certain places. I'm trying to think of the standout scenes. So we see it a lot with. Kevin and Chiron, especially in the last segment. We see mm -hmm. it with his mom while she's going through withdrawal. Were there other segments that stood out to you where that was used? It's just something that permeated the entire film, and I felt it did cause a little bit of um, ocular exhaustion. One thing I will say, the color palette to this film and the oh, costuming so good. is fantastic. Um, the standout scene, again from the sequence, is when he travels to Kevin's beach uh, by uh, metro mm -hmm. and it's it's this nighttime scene and there's you know reflecting puddles and there's the these intense like neon glow of the metro stations and the bicycle poles and all that it's the night scenes are just beautifully shot in the film and so it's frustrating where Part of the film is so beautifully shot, and some of the dream dream sequences have this like otherworldly color palette, very similar to um, Kurosawa's Kagemusha. You know where it's like just the strangest color combinations. And then to go back to the daytime scenes where it's kind of shot reverse shot close ups, it's kind of visually grating to look at, in my opinion. 
Counterpoint, would you argue that was done on purpose? Because I, watching this movie, I was trying to figure out the thematic and symbolic meaning behind the story Juan tells Chiron Little and the title of this movie, Moonlight. And the best I could come up with is these characters, the scenes where they are most vulnerable happen under Moonlight or under a blue color palette because he mentions um, in Moonlight, black boys look blue. I think that's what Juan Mm -hmm. says. So I feel like you're supposed to enjoy, you're supposed to enjoy existing in these scenes that are lit by Moonlight. You have obviously the intimate scene on the beach right before Chiron opens up to Kevin. Kevin switches into a blue shirt, um, symbolizing that I think they're choosing to be vulnerable. But at the worst moments of these characters' lives, like the beginning of the third segment, uh, Chiron is in all black with some grills, clearly putting up walls both emotionally and physically. And he's wearing that yellow button down as he's getting beaten up almost opposite color of blue in terms of the <laughs> color palette, right? Yellow? Yeah. No? Uh, yeah, kind of. Purple, <laughs> yellow, uh, blue, orange, but close okay. enough. But my argument is that this movie is trying to reach a conclusion that it's okay to be vulnerable and that these scenes lit by moonlight are when you're, you're most true. I'm going to take back that criticism. I did not consider that. That is a really interesting... Um, thought. I I didn't consider that. I that. I think that just bumped up the film and uh, my appreciation. I, <laughs> I I think I just didn't even consider that that was intentional for the daytime scenes. That uh, I think that came from um re- repeat viewing. I've been thinking about this movie a lot since I saw it. It's one that's stood out in my mind from 2016, like this and Arrival. And then I watched it again, so I think I had that benefit of repeat viewing. But yeah, that was something I sought to discover is why, because it's kind of a cryptic title. I wanted to kind of break down why Barry Jenkins made those choices that he did. Mm -hmm. So we've alluded to it a little bit, but moving into the last segment, this is the most talky of them, I feel like. What emotions did you come away with for this scene? What emotions did I feel from this? I'm not really sure. In a way, it's somewhat of a resolution to the plot. Um, Kevin calls him one night after a another voice message from his mom. Uh, he tells him that he uh, is on parole and he's got a job at a diner and that he would love to make him a dinner sometime and catch up on lost time. Uh, and so Chiron, uh, heads back to Georgia and, or no, Miami, I believe, uh, from Georgia and, uh, kind of has a, not so much a breakthrough, but a reconciliation with his mother, where in which they, not so much forgiveness, but a new understanding is reached between the two. And they, they both say things that they've been meaning to say for their whole lives. And... You know, they can move forward from this point and maybe build upwards from that. And uh, after seeing his mother, he continues to drive over to uh, where Kevin is. Um, I don't think it's in Miami. Outskirts of Miami. Outskirts of Miami. Yeah, it is because that's the same beach. Is it? He lives by the beach where... um... Okay. I thought it was a different place in Florida. No, I'm pretty sure. Because I didn't notice that the first time, but the second time he like stares out into the beach and it's like kind of a parallel shot of when he earlier when he's mm-hmm. walking out there. So I'm pretty sure that Kevin moved to that beach. Okay. In that case, um, they, they meet at the diner. Um, Kevin makes him a meal and they discuss, they catch up on lost time and uh, they retire to Kevin's house and they... Comfort each other uh, as Chiron's last emotional wall is torn down. Yeah, I think both of these scenes were so, like, again, kind of heartbreaking, but also very... The best kind of sadness. Yeah. Where it's a, not a wholesome sadness, but a sadness that makes you feel good to be alive. Yeah. 
a sadness that needed to be felt in order to move past it. Exactly. Um, I don't know where Chiron goes after these conversations. I hope that emotionally he's a healthier person and he has a healthier relationship with these two just from allowing himself to be vulnerable after somewhere between eight and 10 years, eight and 12 years, I would say, of putting up these walls as a drug dealer, as someone that's quote unquote hard. Very much emulating his father figure. Exactly. Even as the cap. Same cap, same kind of style of car and all that. Yeah. But the worst parts of him, in a way. Mm-hmm. He emulated the wrong stuff. Sadly, he didn't take, it, take in any kids that he could raise as a surrogate son. No, he didn't. <laughs> so, in the sequel, that's what we're going to see. Yeah, Moonlight 2. <laughs> Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I can't really pick a segment that stood out to me the most. I would say my favorite scene in the entire film is when the music is played on the um in the diner yeah that that is one of those this is why i watch film moments you know where you really are brought to a a, an elevated place a higher place and if you think about what they're actually saying nothing meaningful in the okay nothing meaningful regarding the relationship of kevin and um chiron because we obviously had the interaction with the mom earlier nothing important is said until he says you're the only man that's ever touched me i think that's the first thing he says that actually like kind of breaks the tension everything else is subtext like it's right. the way they look at each other it's these performances it's the song that he chooses to play for him so everything that's in between the lines exactly like if this was done by a lesser director with lesser actors, <laughs> it wouldn't work at all. Right. <laughs> and that's something you kind of take for granted when a movie works, is that this is probably really difficult to pull off because nothing within the script, in terms of lines character says, for like 20 minutes, is that impactful to how they actually feel. Absolutely. That's the power of acting, to make something from nothing. Yeah. And that's kind of a through line for both of these movies is I feel like they had incredible ensembles. Like there wasn't a bad performance in the movie. You have two standout characters, but still both really incredibly well acted movies. Absolutely. Any closing points on Moonlight? I, uh, I might have to rewatch this film. I, uh, under the, this new light, under this new moonlight. <laughs> this new moonlight. Um, yeah, uh, great film. Really I, enjoyed it. I agree. Rewatching this movie. Oh, it's so good. Highly recommend. It's available on Amazon Prime right now. I think it will be in perpetuity because it was. I think I watched it on HBO. Really? Maybe. I'm not sure. No, I watched on Amazon. Sorry. I was gonna say I'm like usually they don't double yeah. license like that, but. That would have been cool. More people that see this movie, the better. Um, I think we're coming away recommending both of these films for both of us. Absolutely. Um, which is exciting. But next week, Ted, what will I be watching? Well, I want to hear what you have to recommend me first, because I have a list of films. Okay. Uh, we decided that the Clayton has a film that he wants me to watch, and I said that we should do a topic again, much like the animated films. So he told me the topic would be sci-fi. So, what am I going to be watching? Ted, as you may remember, a movie I love that I've already mentioned in this podcast that is directed by someone we've already talked about. Uh-huh. <laughs> what the what the fuck was that? You're already writing it down. <laughs> um, this Saturday, they are playing Children of Men at the Little Theater, and I'm going to see this movie, and I hope you join me because I that will is join movie. you. I am recommending this week. All right. It Shout is... out to the Little Theater in Rochester. Awesome place. <laughs> so good. Saturday Night Rewind is amazing. Um, I've seen Mandy in 35mm as well as Groundhog Day there. And fantastic group of people as well as just fantastic film quality. Yeah. And Children of Men, the trailers for this movie are horrible. The posters <laughs> are worse. So look at them. Lower your expectations and then go into this movie. Don't watch any scenes um, because they often, you may have already seen some, they often pop up in like editing or cinematography when different uh, YouTubers talk Mm -hmm. about that. 
But yeah, this movie is incredible. It's fresh in my mind. I watched it recently, and it's directed by Alfonso Cuaron. So, so in the style or in the vein of sci-fi dystopians, I think there could be no better recommendation than Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Okay, cool. I watched this as part of a class called From the Machine Aesthetic to the Cyborg Age, and it blew me away. This is a powerhouse of a film, and so influential across all of science fiction. Is it the first science fiction film, like, ever? No, no, no. I believe that would be Jules Verne to the moon and back again. I believe. Oh, true. I guess I think, that does count as or, a movie. <laughs> and I believe uh, Thomas Edison did a Frankenstein adaptation in 1910. Okay, but did he? He did. Hmm. It's one of those really early surviving films that still exists. Cool. Okay, so this genre is as old as time. Yeah. <laughs> as uh, old as movies. But this is a fantastic film, and it is really moving and compelling. I recently was saw it on Netflix and I was like I should watch this and then it was longer than I was anticipating <laughs> so I'm excited to be forced to watch it because I know yes. it's I, I've heard it's really good from you and other people that was just the one barrier I had, had yet to cross um cool I'm excited for next All week right. thanks for listening um be sure to check out our podcast next week when we talk about these sci-fi films Ted is there anywhere people can check out your artwork yes you can find uh my artwork at my twitter account that is Ted Ryan Art at These Fine Times. Uh, and you can see the podcast art for this podcast you're listening to posted there. And I've started posting some schoolwork there as well. So you can see what I am up to at the moment. Cool. And I host two other podcasts, Stories Worth Sharing and the Terry Talks Podcast. Um, our intro song is Outro by Wolfpack. And as mentioned... <laughs> we got to find a, a, a better... Outro is the intro song. Outro is the int- outro by Wolfpack is the intro song by us. Sure. We'll, we'll workshop it. We'll workshop it. Great song, great band. Check it out. And yeah, we'll see you next week. Bye.